2: Welcome to the program as we begin a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a show dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. Uh, To do that, we need for you to call us 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free. At 877 630 KSLR. Numerically, that's 630 5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. You can hit one banner, top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope and pray you had a good weekend this weekend at church. Uh, We did here at Calvary Chapel. Tonight, uh, in terms of scheduling, we've got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies all. taking place at 7 o'clock. Paula will be teaching the ladies. That can be watched on live stream at CalvarySA.com. Pastor Ken, of course, will be with the men. And then we've got uh, our youth pastors who are teaching the junior hires and the high schoolers as well. Let's get to the questions while we await your phone calls. Diane is first. She says, in Matthew 5, how literally are we to take turn the other cheek as Jesus preached about it? Can we not defend ourselves? Diane, that's to really miss the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, especially as we are are fairly new in our faith, uh, we read that and we think that's an impossible standard. Who can do these things? And that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. So when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying to Jews, now this is a very Jewish message, and we have to see it that way. Remember, Jesus, this is at the beginning of his ministry. He's coming to his own people, the house of Israel. They are going to reject him through the end. We all know that. But here's what he's telling the religious leaders and the crowd that would assemble outside. He said, if you want to be in heaven, this is how good you have to be. And remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's raising the standard. It's not just about the law. He says, you've heard that it was written, but I say unto you. So he's raising the standard. It's not just keeping the law, but the spirit behind the law as well. And basically what Jesus was saying is, you can't get to heaven without me, so you have to be like me. And Jesus, in fact, Diane, turned the other cheek, didn't he? Isaiah chapter 50 says that he offered his back to those who beat him. He offered his face for those who would pull out his beard. They spat upon him and they beat him mercilessly. Well, Jesus took all of that in spite of the fact that out of his own mouth, he said, 12 legions of angels are at the ready. All I have to do is say the word and they're here. So Jesus was saying, this is how good you have to be. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is an impossible standard. We should try to live moving in that direction. But Jesus never, when he declared the sermon, did he expect people to really turn the other cheek or, or, or to, to do the things that he said there because he knew that was impossible yoke. So he's saying, Diane, believe in me because I will have done all of this for you. And so that's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Relative to your question, can we defend ourselves? Of course we can defend ourselves. And in fact, uh, we're supposed to defend ourselves. Uh, Jesus, at the end of his ministry, he said to his disciples, look, uh, until now, uh, you've needed nothing. I've taken care of you. I've protected you. But now I'm going to my father and your father. So now by a sword. And what he was saying was, now is when things are really going to get hard. So yes, we can defend ourselves. Um, Somebody hits you in the cheek. You don't have to turn. Okay, take another shot. Jesus is making a completely different point altogether. And Diane, I really hope that makes sense because I've seen people so agonized over the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I've tried and I can't do it. Of course you can't. And that is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. So thank you for the question, Diane. I hope that really registers. Here's a question from Rodney. He says, would God allow someone who has grown up in a strict Jehovah's Witness family to go to heaven because they didn't know any other way? Rodney, the answer is no. Um, Everybody who claims to know God has a responsibility to find out if the God they follow really is God. And of course, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's the um, Michael, the archangel, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, strict works, salvation policy, they're very exclusive, and that's why Jehovah's Witnesses is, is a cult, primarily because they change the nature and the character of God. They they strip him of his deity. He's no longer the creator of all things. He is himself a created being. And when somebody grows up, and I understand how how it is, we've had a lot of people come out of cults, Um, uh, that's all they've ever been fed they believe it with all of their heart Um, but you see at some point we're all of us responsible to find out what's true now one of the problems we have Rodney is that uh, truth has lost its power in the world that we live in but not with God so if I believe that Um, I had a question about 12-step groups last week. If I believe that, that a fish can be my higher power, I better find out if that fish really is really a higher power, if he's really God. And so somebody growing up in a Mormon family or Jehovah's Witness family, they need to question what they're taught. They need to prove this one vital question. Is this God, God? And in both cases, the answer is no. And Jesus said he was the way, the only way to heaven. No one can go to the Father except through Him. He is the truth. That means any so-called truth that contradicts what is really true is not true at all. And we all have responsibility. You know, Rodney, when I get questions like this, you know, um, we need to remember that God, according to our Bibles, has made Himself known. Romans 1. Um, the psalmist, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God day after day, they pour forth speech. Uh, there is no nation language where they're not understood. Um, so every single human is without excuse. And as we respond obediently to what we do know is true, God reveals more truth to us. I always think of the Ethiopian eunuch. God sent Philip from a thriving ministry in Samaria into a desert, simply to come alongside the Ethiopian eunuch and explain to him what he was reading. Why? Because he was a true seeker of God. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. And the person that grows up in a Mormon family or in your situation, a Jehovah's Witness family, and all they do is just, without questioning, they buy what they're, they're, they're told. Um, they're really not seeking God at all. I think we need to remember that. I I realize that sometimes it feels like, well, people that don't have a chance to grow up in a Christian home or or don't hear about Jesus, uh, it's not really their fault, uh, but it is. And every single human being is accountable and no one will get away with it. So, Rodney, thank you for the question. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I walked away from God for several years and now I'm afraid he won't take me back. My life is a mess. Um, Anonymous on Wednesday, if you're uh, close to a computer, or maybe if you're in the northeast part of San Antonio, uh, come to our Bible study, because I'm going to talk in Genesis chapter 28 about a man whose life was really a mess. Jacob. And God meets him. He falls asleep, uses a rock for a pillow, and he sees the ladder between heaven and earth one that can bridge the gap. And when he wakes up out of that sleep, he says, surely God was in this place. His life was a mess. He was scared. He was running away. Uh, he was a liar. He was a cheater. And yet all the promises God made to him and to his uh, father and grandfather about him, all those promises, because God is faithful. All those promises are still yes and amen. So I'm also going to have a chance to share um, some of my own story in this. God wants me to do that in this passage of Scripture. And um, it'd be a good message for you to hear. I'll say this um, I'm glad that God is knocking on the door of your heart. I'm actually glad your life is a mess, because evidently that's what it took to get you thinking. And not only will he take you back, but his arms are open wide. And if you run back to him, what you're going to find is that everything was part of his plan. He knows who you are. Before you walked away from him, he believed everything that you said. He knew what you were going to do still. He knew what you said and believed it. And so he just constructed a series of events to get you to the very place you're in. The only thing I would really uh, say is imperative for you is to come to Him right now. Don't wait until the mess gets bigger. Don't, Don't let pride or don't let the fear of consequences keep you from running back to God. Right now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. And He'll forgive you. It's what He wants to do. It's not something he is doing begrudgingly. He's not looking to scold you. He's not looking to embarrass you. He's looking to pour himself out before you. And all you have to do is ask. He makes it so simple. So anonymous, that's what my counsel is. Do it. And if uh, you're in the area or available to watch online on Wednesday night. I think that uh, the Lord will speak to your heart. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. You know, um, I always worry about saying this. I don't want anybody to misunderstand. But, um, you know, when God asked me to give my testimony, People always get saved. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's here at Calvary Chapel or or uh, if I'm off teaching someplace else. Um, there are times when God will say, this is what I want you to do. And I always tell, if it's in another church, I'll tell the pastor, you need to have people there to pray because people are going to get saved. And I don't mean that at all sound arrogant. It's just something that God does every time. And Wednesday, again, I'm going to be teaching to a, a, a Christmas season, a small midweek crowd. Um, but um, somebody will give their heart to Jesus. And and I know that because that's always the case. And while I'm not going to give my whole testimony, that's not the point of the study. I want to teach Genesis chapter 28, but I'm going to apply it. I'm going to apply it to the things in my life so people can see just how faithful God really is. And Paul, I know you're listening. Um, You need to get ready because... Um, It's going to conjure up a few bad memories um, before it it sort of hits your heart with how good God is. So be ready for that. Anonymous says, should Christians take the COVID vaccine? Anonymous, I have no expertise to make that statement. I can tell you this, it's certainly not unchristian or anti-biblical at all to do so. Uh, do it as the Lord leads. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I, you know, having had COVID, I'm, I'm sort of immune for a time. I don't know how long. Nobody does. Um, but um, I would probably, uh, if there was a possibility of me getting this again, uh, I would probably take it myself. It's certainly not the mark of the beast. I know there's some. Um, internet chat about how this is just the, the way the government control you. Don't believe the conspiracy theories are the lies. Just you and Jesus sit down and talk to him about it. Uh, like I said, I probably will uh, if the danger comes up or the possibility comes up that I'm going to get this again. Uh, but um, whether or not you should is up to you. And the fact that you would ask um a voice on the radio. This question is a little concerning to me. Um, I certainly would get off the internet and just let the Lord speak to your heart. I'm I'm grateful, Anonymous, that there seems to be a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccines seem to be um, three times as effective as even our flu vaccines are, and you probably haven't struggled over taking a flu vaccination shot. I've never had, by the way, but 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 many people do, uh, this is three times more effective. And uh, I would think it's probably the right thing to do, but that's not my decision to make in your life. Tammy says, how do you explain the reality of suffering in this world when we claim God is good? Wouldn't he stop suffering if he was good and powerful? Um, Tammy, that, that that's an, an argument that that really is, is without foundation at all. Um, I always wonder why people blame God for the suffering in this world. Of course there is suffering in this world. Of course um, there are terrible things that people do to one another. There are terrible consequences from, from living in a fallen world. But that's not God's fault. He's not the one who fell. Humans, we're the ones who fail, who fall, who sin. And every time we do, we contribute to the suffering in this world. Now, relative to your question about wouldn't God stop stop suffering if he was good and powerful, you know, at some point, Tim, he's going to do exactly that. But that's not going to happen until the time is right. And the time isn't right yet. God is patient, unwilling that any should perish. There are more people that need to get saved. But when he comes back, he's going to do exactly what you ask him to do. I've had the same question about, well, wouldn't God, why doesn't God stop sin? Well, if he did, he'd stop it all. When he stops sin in Revelation chapter 19, you can read it, Tammy. When he stops sin, that means he's going to judge and destroy his enemies. So suffering is a fact of life. It has always been a fact of life in a fallen world. And Jesus never promised to stop suffering until he comes again. But he promised to be with us during our suffering and he himself suffered immeasurably. You know, if God could be thought of the way you're positioning your questions here, then the only time God really should have stopped evil from happening is when that evil was occurring to his son, Jesus. Jesus was on the cross. Jesus suffered. He knows what we're going through. Jesus' heart is broken that the world is in the mess that it's in. And one day he's coming. I think that day, Tammy, is pretty soon. He's coming one day And all suffering, there'll be no more pain and no more tears. And we will be where we really belong. And of course, Tammy, that's with him in heaven. So uh, as long as Jesus suffered himself in our place, as long as that's true, then we really can't blame him for the suffering in the world or not stopping the suffering in the world. He is good. He demonstrated that. He was perfect. He was without sin. His resurrection from the dead validates that. He is loving. He proved that by giving His only Son, by Jesus dying on the cross. And He has powerfully proved that by being resurrected, resurrected from the dead. So one day He's coming and everything will be as we all want it to be. But that day is not yet now. So Tammy, consider those Responses three four zero ninety five eighty five. Walt wants to know what is the most effective way to minister to Mormons. You know, Walt, um, uh, I, I think the most effective way to minister to anybody. I'll specifically deal with Mormons in a moment, but the most effective way to minister to anybody is just to share the truth with them. Just share the truth. Talk about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. As I said in the other question about Jehovah's Witnesses, the JW Jesus is not Jesus. The Mormon Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so what you do is you ask them questions. Now, uh, I have a, a an acquaintance, a Calvary Chapel pastor uh, in Utah. Um, he, he grew up um, just a few miles from where his church is. Now it's a um, sort of a a small community, about 30,000 spread in the area. And uh, 95% of the people in his church come from Mormon backgrounds. And because they come from Mormon backgrounds and because he himself was Mormon, um, he obviously, um, to have his church grow at all, he's got to convert Mormons. And they've been doing a really effective job and and uh, I posed this question to him, and he said, uh, "I don't mean to, to to make this sound naive, but it's just the Bible. Show him the Bible, and ask him to read it. Challenge him to read it, and let the Word of God and the Spirit of God working through the Word of God do the do the work." He said, uh, I, "I've many many lifelong Mormons." And they start coming to church for one reason or another. or run into them in the community, people that I've known. And and if they'll accept my challenge to really look at the Bible. Don't look at at the the Pearl of Great Price. Don't look at the the Joseph Smith books. uh, Just just the Bible. And he says overwhelmingly those people begin questioning and digging in. And he said he's found that as the most effective way to uh, evangelize Mormons. So that's what I would do as well. I believe that the the word is living and active. It'll meet them where they are. If they're really seekers, they will find who Jesus really is. And I think just as importantly in their case, who he's not. And I think that matters a great deal. The same pastor, he said to me, said, you know, Ron, there are, there are, are Mormons I've known my whole life and they know me. And they'll tell me point blank, look, you can prove to me everything that I believe is wrong. I'm still not going to believe in anything else because this is who I am. This is the way I was raised. Now, in San Antonio, while we know Catholics who say the same thing to us, I was born Catholic, I'm going to die Catholic. What if I show you that what the Catholics teach isn't true? Doesn't matter. I'm going to believe it. And you're willing to go to hell for eternity. If you're wrong without checking it out, the answer is yes. There's nothing, Walt, that you can do for people like that. Nothing you can do at all. So I hope that helps, Walt. Thank you very, very much. 3409585. Uh, I've got Ray online one. Ray, if we get to the break, we'll just take your question over the break as well.
1: Well, it's not exactly a question. It's more, uh, wondering uh since we you know we've seen statues torn down and you know history relatively changed uh, uh, and and now we have another uh sports team uh dropping their uh yeah. their deal di- what do you think about that miss uh it i know you were Hot on baseball and uh i'm just I'm just really disgusted, especially when uh things have turned so <laughs> weird in the election, and that uh you know yep. Hillary and bill had gotten no <laughs> no comeback on on their illegality. So I'll just Mm -hmm. listen and see if you have anything to say about it. But it was kind of just the last straw when the baseball went to heck. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Ray, uh, I'm going to take your. I'll I'll answer your question after the break. Uh, Let me just say generally I I read yesterday I was surprised actually uh, that the, the Indians this is the Cleveland Indians changed uh, their name or or said they were going to drop the use of the name Indians um, um, I'm now curious to see if the Atlanta Braves are going to do the same thing um, you know both of those franchises suggested a long time ago that their names their identities honor Native Americans and so they're surprised but yet one of them has already changed their mind and perhaps the other one will as well so uh, I'll, I'll kind of deal with that on the other side of the break because I don't think we have time now um, you're right about one thing. Things have changed, and what I'll expand on on the other side of break is that we got to live in the world that we live in—the real world—and not the world as we want it to be uh, to be effective witnesses. I'll get to that on the other side. Ray, thanks for calling. This is the Word to stand them for life. We have 30 minutes left on the Monday show. We'll be back in two minutes.
0: Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 87-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the program 3409585. I'm gonna deal with Ray's thought. And uh, I, I realize, especially for those of us who are older, and I think Ray is in my group. Uh, in terms of of age category. Um, But, you know, we we see so much um, that's changing. Um, Obviously, the election um, that was just codified or being codified today. uh, These are scary things. And believe me, change is on the horizon. And as Christians, I think what we've got to do is realize that the reason that we're here in these last days is to win individual souls, to stop focusing so much on um, the things that, that, that we're concerned about, the things that irritate us. And I think this is a good opportunity for us to sort of refocus on the primary directive that we've been given to go and make disciples. Um, we should not expect, we have no right to expect that unbelievers in this world are going to behave in a way that makes us comfortable. Not ever. And so what we do is we share Jesus with those people. Now, as Ray mentioned, I I, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. I was wrong. It never happened. Um, probably wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. I was kind of a legend in my own mind. But um, um, it never would have occurred to me that... Anybody, the Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, the Atlanta Braves, were being disrespectful, and yet there are thousands of Native Americans who are offended. Now there are equally thousands who aren't. And what we got to do is remember that our job, especially as Christians, is not to offend anyone. The gospel itself is enough of offense. Let's just save our offending for those times when we can share Jesus with them. The world that we live in is different. People are hypersensitive. We've been on this um, merry-go-round of political correctness now for, I don't know, 10 years. And it gets worse and worse and worse, especially with the advent of social media. So here's what I think we should do. I think what we ought to do is treat people with respect rather than have an opinion about the Cleveland Indians or the Washington Redskins. I think what we need to do is focus our energy on Jesus. What about me, Lord? What do you want me to do? How can I win people? And the one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to offend anybody who I'm going to share Jesus with, at least that is until... I tell them they can't go to heaven without Jesus. Again, I'm saving that. That's the big offense. I'm saving that one because that one's not on me. So it really isn't important what I want. And honestly, whether the Cleveland Indians uh, call themselves the Cleveland Indians or the Cleveland Cowboys, it won't affect the way they play baseball. Um, It won't change anything or anyone. Um, I think we're giving in to political correctness at a dangerous level. I think we're inhibiting the freedom of speech that our Constitution supposedly guarantees. And having said all of that, I think it's important that we recognize that we live in a world and we have to live in it the way it is rather than the way we want it. So Ray, I just, of all the things that I'm concerned about, I just can't let that cause me any pain or any frustration. I just can't. There's so much else out there that causes me so much pain and frustration. Honestly, I don't have any more room to get angry about things that really don't matter that much. I'll say one other thing about sports. I'm a a sports guy. Um, Love watching it on TV. Love going to games. Um, um, Paul and I were Some of the biggest Spurs fans in the world. And they're ruining it. Let me change that. They have already ruined it for me. And so to have a rooting interest in anybody to, I mean, it's just, they're killing the golden goose. And I think they're going to pay the price. Ratings for professional sports and college sports, by the way, um, are at all-time lows. This audience, much of it is not coming back. And the billions of dollars that athletes are being paid as a result of the television contracts, well, all of that's going to change when those contracts come up for renewal. Because the networks are losing huge amounts of money because of the viewership that's down. As a businessman, former businessman, Um, the market is a really good corrector, and I think we're going to see a move in the other direction for no other reason other than they've got to protect the money that is such a big part of that. So I I hope that makes sense to you. Ray. Ben wants to know, will Jews go to heaven if they don't believe in Jesus? Ben, nobody goes to heaven if they don't believe in Jesus. Um, The question with Jews, there's always, um, well, they're God's chosen people, Uh, So certainly they'll be in heaven. No, they won't be in heaven. Jesus said of Judas, who was a Jew, that it would be better had he never been born. Uh, He said to the religious leaders, called them snakes, whitewashed tombs. He told them how accountable they were going to be. Those those were Jews. Uh, Jews 2,000 years later, are only going to go to heaven if they become born again. That's what Jesus said to a Jew, the most religious Jew, the man Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Ben not only is believing in Jesus necessary, but being born again has to result from that knowledge. Everybody knows about Jesus. Jesus. But to believe in him, Paul says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. If you believe in your heart, that knowledge has to change you. Thus, you would be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man go into his mother's womb a second time? What Nicodemus was really saying was, how could I have been so wrong? I'm at the top of my profession. I'm, I'm a wealthy man, which Jews believe to be a sign of God's blessing. Everybody looks up to me. Everybody admires me. And you're telling me, Jesus, that's not enough? And I think Jesus' understanding of Nicodemus' response made him smile when he looked at him the next time and said, you of all people should know except a man be born again. He won't inherit the kingdom of God. So Ben, Jews, -Jews, non-Jews, the only way anybody gets to heaven is to live uh, a born again Christian life to know Jesus. Hope that helps. Thank you very very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Scott from our email inbox. Um, he said Romans one sixteen. Is there anything we can derive from Paul's focus in his ministry when he went out to preach the world the word? In every town he would seek out and preach to the Jews first before he sought out the Gentiles. I ask because Jesus was specific in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, 16, saying that Paul's mission was to the Gentiles and their kings into the people of Israel. God mentions the Gentiles first before he mentions Israel. Usually when something is mentioned first, it has priority. Um, Yeah, um, Scott, when when Jesus told Paul he was going to the Gentiles, remember specifically, it was Paul, uh, and when I say, I'm going to use the word arguing, but I don't mean he was arguing with Jesus. But Paul really believed that Jews would listen to him. He said, "Look, I'm a I'm a Benjamite, I'm a I'm a Jew of Jews uh, as a Pharisee, faultless in terms of righteousness." What he was saying is, "Look, I'm one of you," and, and basically he thought, "Lord, they they will they will listen to me." And Paul uh, would after hear Jesus look at him and say, "Paul, Paul, Paul." They're not going to listen to you. Your mission is to go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul would also understand what we know in the Gospels, that we are told to go out and make disciples beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then into the outer parts of the world. And and Paul's ministry effectively began the outer parts of the world portion of that that come in. Jesus um, was sent to Jews and the pattern of the Jews who got saved early was always to start in synagogues. They would be in the Sabbath sharing. um, But eventually God selected this one man, Paul, to go to Gentiles. So there's no contradiction there. Um, He would always look for Jews. It was a place to begin, uh, following the example of Jesus, knowing that he would be rejected. And uh, every time he would say, okay, so you reject me, I'm going to take the He'd get in more trouble because Jews hated Gentiles. They didn't think there was anything they could do at all. I like Romans 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto a salvation. Good question, Scott. Thank you very much. Danny wants to know, what does it mean that Jesus led captives in his train? Um, Danny, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is the New Testament passage uh, where we get this. Uh, Paul there was, was drawing from the 68th Psalm. And what it means is that Jesus uh, went to um, the, the, the abyss, into the abyss after his death uh, and set the captives free and what he was doing, he was going, if, if you look in Luke chapter 16, there are two compartments. There's a place of torment and then there's a place called paradise. Um, Father Abraham was was there in Luke chapter 16. It's not a parable, by the way, it's a real story. And um, it was it was the place for the believing dead. Now, as wonderful as paradise is, and we can only imagine, paradise is a great thing, but it, it's not heaven. And they were constrained there, contained there, until Jesus set them free. So when he went to the center part of the earth and preached the victory message, not a second chance for those who were were in the place of torment, but a victory message that, that death has been overcome, he opened the gates. And all of those who believed in Jesus before the cross were set free. And when it says he led captives in his train, that just means he took them to heaven to be in the presence of God with him. You remember when Mary Magdalene was trying to hold on to him and he said, don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me because I still have to go to my father and your father. Well, that's what he was doing in the center of the earth. So that's what it means. He set them free. One can only begin to imagine how glorious that was. You know, I think of a the, the light of heaven filling the abyss. Imagine what it must have been like, the, the ground beginning to shake and the sounds of the angelic host. And everybody saying, now it's time, it's time. How exciting it would be. And when Jesus appeared and proclaimed that message of victory, He was vindicating the faith of the faithful, all of those in Hebrews chapter 11 and and of course the millions of people whose names we never will have. Mm -hmm. But he was vindicating them. How long, O Lord, till you avenge our death, the martyred dead will say during the great tribulation. Well, those who were held in paradise would know at that moment that they were being vindicated and that they would soon be with Jesus. You know, um, Danny, I always think about John the Baptist when I think about that particular moment. Because you remember when John was in jail and and, uh, he was about to lose his head, um, he sent some of his disciples and said, you go ask him, is he the one or should we look for another? You know, he started questioning what he knew for sure. He expected that Jesus would set the Jews free from Rome. He he accept, uh, expected that that uh, the, the kingdom of God would be established instantly. So too did Jesus' disciples. And Jesus just answered him. He said, "You go back and tell John that the dead live, the blind can see." In other words, what a, the Messiah was supposed to do, Jesus was doing. John would have said, oh, yeah. So when Jesus came down to set the captives free, to lead them to heaven, I think nobody would be any more excited about it than John the Baptist. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Amy says, pride goes before a fall, right? But do we have to fall? (laughs) Well, Amy, um, we don't have to fall, but most of us, I think, do. And pride certainly is one of the main causes for those times when we fall short. Um, But the truth is, none of us have to fall. We just do. If you're not humble, then you will fall, that's for sure. Pride is a trap. Humility is the only way to, to counteract The pride that is inherent in all of us. What I always try to tell the Lord is, look, if I mess up, it's going to be just my fault. But may I come to you quickly to be rescued from it. So, yeah, pride goes before a fall. Um, But remember, God says, humble yourselves. And the idea there is, humble yourself so I don't have to do it. It was out of pride that Satan, Lucifer fell became Satan, the devil so no Amy we don't have to fall problem is we do and a lot of times it is pride that keeps us from repenting and coming uh, back to Jesus Adam says in Bible studies at church why aren't we allowed to ask questions or make comments during the study I don't really understand why it is a lecture instead of a participation. Now, Adam, I don't know where you go to church, but um, the way church is set up, and it's always been this way, when Acts chapter 2, um, when, when the church was founded, um, the church focused on doctrine, uh, people being taught, and the, the biggest need, Adam, people have is to be taught. Who is Jesus? What is he like? How can I be more like him? And uh, in a Bible study at church, uh, we need to provide the time and the attention for people to, to learn. And the way to do that is to teach the Bible. And if every time I was teaching, and I'm just using our church as an example, if every time I was teaching something and somebody had a question, they could raise their hand, um and say, well, I don't understand this, or I don't agree with this. What about my views? Well, well, then there would be constant distractions, and we'd never really get any functional Bible studies done. It is lecture, because that's what preaching is. Um, So I'm really not understanding the motive behind your question. Uh, Surely, for 40 minutes, you can, in some places even shorter, surely for 40 minutes you can pay attention and learn and you've got a a notebook or something you can write questions down and I don't know a single church where there aren't lots and lots of people available after the service to ask those questions. So the truth is we gather together to study the Bible. And when you go into a physics class, you go there to learn and somebody who knows more than you do teaches you. And Adam, teachers are a gift given to the church by God. And I think you need to learn to appreciate that gift a little bit. You know, we have um, limited time. We do three services here on Sunday morning. And um, we just don't have time for interruptions. But we've got Bible Studies uh, Foundations class on Sunday nights uh, that are discussion groups. We've got uh, men's groups tonight. Pastor Ken uh, will be teaching it. And there's plenty of opportunity in a much smaller group, a less less time-critical group, to ask questions and make comments. Um, so there's plenty of opportunities, just not in the primary um, gatherings here at churches. Um, this is one of the reasons that we have this radio show. So you can ask questions, you can make comments, all you got to do is dial 340-9585, and you can ask all the questions you want. And um, this radio show is a ministry of our church, so it's just one more way that we can function um, in a way to to meet the needs of the people who come. So Adam, I hope that makes sense to you. Bill says, Pastor Ron, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19, can you tell me what is meant exactly by streams in the desert? Isaiah 43, and, and, and much of Isaiah... Is talking about um, how obedience to God, how faith in God, trusting in Him, will turn deserts into blessings. The desert, the wildernesses in the Old Testament, are a picture of, of of the struggle that we all have. Um, Bill, in in uh, I don't know, at least a dozen times over the years, God has drawn my attention. To this passage of scripture in Isaiah just to tell me I know it's hard right now Ron I know you're really struggling I know money is tight but you be obedient you trust me and you're going to find streams in the desert so that's what he's talking about he's talking about changing circumstances but in order for the circumstance to change their responsibility is to be obedient to God Rather than doing what seems right to them, instead to do what is right, as God has already declared it. Very important principle. You know, Bill, one of the things that we, um, I think, forget, it's one of those convenient forgets, our flesh doesn't want to be reminded, Um, God intends to bless all of us, but it has to be on His terms. Always and only on His terms. I think too many of us, we want to live life our way, just like the the Israelites did in the wilderness. Uh, I think we want to live life our way and, and still expect to be blessed. And that's just not the way it's going to work. God wants our obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And Bill, if you love Jesus, I promise you, you're going to find streams in whatever desert you might be in. So that's what's meant there. I know you're in a desert now, but there can be streams. Imagine how valuable, the most valuable commodity in the desert and the wilderness was water. And Jesus went to the woman at the well in Samaria. He said, I give you water that if you drink, you'll never be thirsty again. So that's what he's talking about. That's the the the, the language, the word picture that's being painted. Good question. Thank you, Bill. Um, Vanessa, this will be the last question I can get today. Vanessa says, just how involved is Satan in the sins we commit? Uh, Vanessa, he's plenty involved. For sure, Satan is plenty involved. Um, but, but he's not the responsible party you are. Satan's a liar. Satan threatens and Satan tries to scare us and Satan tries to tempt us. But we're the ones that have to give him the opportunity. You know, Satan can lie to me all he wants, but until I start entertaining those lies, I'm impervious to them. I was reading Psalms. I'm, my, my personal reading is in Psalms right now. and I was reading Psalms, and, and uh, I was just reminded that, uh, and this is an area of temptation occasionally, uh, I was just reminded, um, don't take the way of man, but trust in the Lord. And in that particular context, I know he's speaking to me about money. You know, it's, it's always easy to try to figure out ways to get more money to come in. Um, um, I've been particularly grieved by uh, how now almost every ministry is soliciting money at the year end. Um, um, this final opportunity, the, the December, of course, for all of nonprofits, especially churches. It's our biggest month of the year for giving. And I'm I'm sort of irritated because, well, you know, we've got matching donors. You give this and we'll double and, and that's just a scam. And and so I'm kind of fussing about that. And the Lord says, yeah, but you, this isn't about them, this is about you. Don't go in the way of man. I'll take care of it. So, um, you know, it's Satan working on me. Now, the one thing I want to say before we go off the air today, Vanessa, is that you have the power to control your response. We don't have to give in. We don't have to commit sin. If we do it, it's our choice and our responsibility. So don't blame it on Satan. It's your fault or mine. Hey. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Monday edition of The Word to Stand Up for Life. Remember our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Bye-bye.